Section 15 of Life of Sir Walter Raleigh by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 9 Last Days of Elizabeth, Part 1. The year after the island voyage in 1598, Elizabeth's chief enemy, Philip II, died at the age of 71. His great schemes had not succeeded. He had lost the Netherlands and had failed to establish the power of his house. He had expended such enormous sums of money in the furtherance of his schemes that in spite of the wealth he received from his colonies, he left his country financially ruined. After his death, the power of Spain in Europe steadily though slowly declined. But it was formidable enough, and the voices of Essex and Raleigh were still for war. Burley and others hoped to establish a lasting peace which might diminish the Queen's difficulties in Ireland, where the rebels always looked to Spain for help. Early in 1598, Henry IV of France had made peace with Philip II, and France, under a king of Huguenot blood, if no longer of Huguenot faith, was at last enjoying the blessings of peace and toleration. Elizabeth had long carried on the struggle against Spain, and she too, in her old age, wished for peace. But Irish difficulties were again pressing on her, and there were many debates in council how they should be met. Raleigh had thought much on Irish affairs, and knew more about the difficulties of government in Ireland than most men about the Queen. She often asked his advice, but she would not make him what he so much wished to be, a member of her council. Raleigh longed to shine as a statesman, and would undoubtedly have done so had he been permitted, but the jealousy of his enemies kept him from holding any important office in the state. In the debates in council on Irish affairs, Essex expressed his opinions with violence, especially in the discussion about filling up the vacant office of Lord Deputy. On one occasion, when the Queen would not listen to him, he so far forgot the respect he owed her as to turn his back upon her in contempt. This was too much for Elizabeth, who in a fit of rage gave him a box on the ear and bade him go and be hanged. Essex laid his hand upon his sword, exclaiming that he would not have put up with such an affront, not at the hands of Henry VIII himself, and left the court in a passion. Before long a reconciliation was brought about, but it is said that Elizabeth never quite forgot the affront. On August 4, 1598, she lost her faithful and well-tried servant, William Cecil, Lord Burley, who died at the age of 78, having served Elizabeth for forty years. During the whole of this time he had been her chief adviser and guide, the very soul of her policy. His death left her lonely, surrounded by younger men whose enthusiasm she could not share, who had not gone through the days of struggle, difficulty, and danger with her. England was going on and leaving her behind. It was no longer the England she had known and loved, and guided through storm and peril. The results of her work were beginning to be seen, but she could not understand them. Men were thinking of her successor, and though she herself would not allow the subject to be discussed, she knew that it was in every one's thoughts. Essex, the man she most loved, 
treated her rudely and contemptuously and yet she still clung to him she tried to disguise her age by paint and false hair she is described by a foreign ambassador about this time as having an oblong face fair but wrinkled her eyes small yet black and pleasant her nose a little hooked her lips narrow and her teeth black she had in her ears two pearls with very rich drops she wore false hair and that red upon her head a small crown her bosom was uncovered as all the english ladies have it till they marry she had on a necklace of exceeding fine jewels her hands were small her fingers long and her stature neither tall nor low her air was stately her manner of speaking mild and obliging she was dressed in white silk bordered with pearls of the size of beans and over it a mantle of black silk shot with silver threads her train was very long the end of it borne by a marchioness instead of a chain she had an oblong collar of gold and jewels but false hair and fine dresses could not make elizabeth a young beauty and we cannot wonder that essex was always fretting against the chains in which she tried to hold him and struggling after a more active life which would better suit his ambitious spirit at last it was determined to send essex himself as lord deputy to ireland with an army of twenty-two thousand men to quell the rebellion of the earl of tyrone it was thought that there essex would find a field for his warlike energies he himself went rather unwillingly he was afraid of what his enemies might do in his absence but the people with whom he was always a favourite on account of his princely generosity greeted his appointment with enthusiasm and hoped great things from it since the defeat and death of the earl of desmond ireland had been nominally at peace but the severity of the government and the cruelty and exactions of the soldiers had fostered the spirit of discontent amongst the irish spanish agents and jesuits in disguise had done their utmost to increase this discontent ireland was then as it has ever been england's most vulnerable point and it was very important to spain to keep ireland in an unsettled condition at last in fifteen ninety two the discontent broke out in the rebellion of hugh o'neill the earl of tyrone round whom gathered the northern tribes elizabeth had done her utmost to secure the fidelity of hugh o'neill he had been partly educated at the english court and she had given him the earldom of tyrone for a time he had been a faithful supporter of the government but when his power increased he determined to assert his independence his rebellion had now reached such formidable proportions that it was absolutely necessary to suppress it and this was the work with which essex was entrusted by his conduct in ireland essex disappointed every one's hopes his orders had been to proceed at once against tyrone but he spent three months in desultory warfare before he marched against him at all then his soldiers were so dispirited by sickness that he did not venture to risk a battle he concluded an armistice with tyrone against express orders and hastened back to england trusting to his popularity and favour with the queen to prevent his conduct from being too severely censured there were rumours of a renewal of the war with spain and this made him doubly anxious to be in england again on his arrival at court he burst in upon the queen when she least expected him in her surprise she received him at first with affection 
but presently ordered him to his apartment and expressed her displeasure at his disobedience of her orders essex's enemies now had a real charge against him they even accused him of having made a treaty with tyrone with a view of obtaining his aid in a projected rising his conduct was examined by the council and he was committed to custody the queen was extremely irritated against him she said i am no queen that man is above me who gave him command to come here so soon i did send him on other business finally essex was deprived of his offices and bidden to live a prisoner in his own house during the queen's pleasure he allowed his anger against the queen to vent itself in violent language which when repeated to her only increased her irritation his enemies were always at hand to prevent any relenting on her part raleigh and cecil were probably both equally anxious to bring about essex's ruin they seem to have been on very good terms with one another at this time we find that cecil's young son was being educated at sherborne with raleigh's son walter under the care of lady raleigh at one time raleigh seems to have feared lest cecil might be persuaded to relent towards essex and he wrote a letter warning cecil in strong language against such a course i am not wise enough to give you advice he writes but if you take it for good counsel to relent toward this tyrant you will repent it when it shall be too late his malice is fixed and will not evaporate by any your mild courses for he will ascribe the alteration to her majesty's pusillanimity and not to your good nature knowing that you work but upon her humour and not out of any love toward him the less you make him the less he shall be able to harm you and yours and if her majesty's favour fail him he will again decline to a common person lose not your advantage he concludes if you do i read your destiny this letter is that of a clear-sighted ambitious man who allows no scruples to stand between himself and the attainment of his purposes raleigh cecil and cecil's brother-in-law lord henry cobham were looked upon as the chief enemies of essex at court and for the time their influence was supreme in sixteen hundred a monopoly for the sale of sweet wines possessed by essex fell in and the queen did not renew it essex seems then to have lost all hope of returning to favour he determined to risk everything and trusting to his popularity to attempt by force to regain his old influence in state affairs he seems to have cherished a wild plan of seizing the queen's person and ruling in her name he summoned his friends to essex house and there held frequent conferences with them till at last the government grew alarmed and summoned essex to appear before the privy council he excused himself on the ground of indisposition and seeing the suspicion with which he was looked upon determined to make his attempt at once the force of the conspirators was too small to enable them to attack the court but the plan was that essex at the head of two hundred gentlemen should ride through the streets of the city and stir up the people to rise in his favour and deliver him from his enemies especially from raleigh and cobham who he asserted constantly threatened his life the night before this desperate attempt raleigh who was then in his town house durham house in the strand sent for sir fernando gorgeous to come and speak with him Gorgias had served often under both Essex and Raleigh, and was now one of the conspirators in Essex House. 
essex bade him go and see raleigh only he advised him not to go to durham house but to meet raleigh on the thames sir christopher blunt another of the conspirators advised gorgeous to take the opportunity of killing raleigh advice which gorgeous scornfully rejected durham house had gardens and stairs running down to the thames and raleigh came out in a boat alone to meet gorgeous who came from essex house which was also on the thames bringing two gentlemen with him raleigh's object seems to have been to try and detach gorgeous from the conspiracy and he advised him to depart the town presently but gorgeous replied that it was too late that there were two thousand gentlemen who had resolved that day to live or die freemen he bade sir walter go back to the court for he was like to have a bloody day of it they parted after a fruitless interview and raleigh rode back in haste for a boat came from the stairs of essex house containing some of the earl's servants who had orders either to seize or kill raleigh the next morning eighth february sixteen o one essex made his foolish attempt some of the members of council came early to essex house in the hope of stopping the rising peaceably but they were kept as hostages essex opened his gates and riding out at the head of two hundred gentlemen made his way into the city there were shouts of for the queen my life is in danger he tried to rouse the citizens to arms he told them that his life was threatened by the daggers of raleigh cecil and cobham and that he wished to free the queen from the evil counsellors by whom she was surrounded but the people simply gazed in amazement and no one stirred at last essex plainly saw that his cause was desperate he made his way back to his house and that night was obliged to surrender to the earl of nottingham the next morning he was taken to the tower End of section fifteen